Some dates excite you. Hi. Some dates thrill you. But a date with Samantha will kill you. From Wes Craven, director of Nightmare on Elm Street, comes Deadly Friend. Rated R. Now playing. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Craven Craven, episode 10 the podcast devoted to all things Wes Craven. I am one of your co-hosts, Patrick Bromley, joined, as always, by my Craven Craven co-host and my horror BFF, Heather Wixon. Hi, Heather. I was going to go, beep, beep. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> in fact, make that the only thing you say this episode. Yes, I'm just going to answer it in, uh, like, beeps and bops. <laughs> uh, if you haven't already figured it out, this month on Craven Craven. We are talking about Wes Craven's next feature. Our last episode was The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. So now we move into 1986's Deadly Friend, Wes Craven's first movie for a major studio. He's working for Warner Brothers now. Getting that that studio money. That's Um, right. Also, this is kind of like, I guess sort of Swamp Thing hits sci-fi. But this is definitely a little more science fiction-y, I think. A little more directly science fiction-y, I guess, is the best way to put it. I would agree that makes with any that. Kind of sense. Wow, Winnie got really upset when I just made that statement. I'm sorry. This is she this doesn't is agree. She doesn't oh. agree. I know. Winnie, can you stop, please? <laughs> Nobody cares. Winnie Nobody is saying BB. BB. There's a yeah. We're we're in a certain. Winnie, stop. Sorry. Oh my gosh. It's okay. We're in a certain. A certain season of our Hell's Kitchen rewatch, and in the opening sequence, it's like a jungle sequence, and there's monkeys, and every time the monkeys start screeching, she freaks out. Interesting. So, yes. She's hitting her terrible twos, so oh. everything is just setting her off these days. Got it. Yes. She's, she is full of sass. <laughs> just like BB. Just like BB, uh, who will stop a robber with a mean chokehold. Uh, so this is based on the novel Friend by Diana Henstel. It's written by Bruce Joel Rubin, who would go on to write Ghost and Jacob's Ladder. Uh, here is the plot summary from IMDb. After his friend is killed by her abusive father, the new kid in town attempts to save her by implanting a robotic microchip into her brain. Mm. That, that sounds like a crazier movie than this ends up being, doesn't it? It does. I mean, it's... I would be interested to see this movie made today. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. I mean, all the dogs in our building are freaking out right now. Guys. Wow. Do you, do you want me to yell in here? Hold on. I'm going to mute for one quick second okay. so I can yell. No problem. Yeah. All the dogs in our building are freaking out. So that's. Are there that's fireworks outside or something? No. I mean, it's still early here. So they're just out there barking like a bunch of jerks. Got and it. He barks and then Utah barks and then I start barking and then it's like a whole thing. Um, I don't want them to feel self-conscious, so, you know, I start barking, too, just to keep everything copacetic in the house. You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, this, as you mentioned, the the synopsis makes it sound like a lot wilder than it is. Um, I'm okay with how it is, but I'll tell you what, I would really love to see, I would love to push this in, like, today. Like, I'd love to recontextualize this today. With how AI has evolved and how, you know, the concept of robotics and all this kind of stuff. Like, I think it'd be really, I don't, I don't often say like, oh, I want to see this remade. Um, especially when it comes to Craven's movies. There's, there's very few movies I would ever say that about. Um, but I think this would be kind of a fun movie to remake today. Yeah, there was talk of a remake a couple of years ago, supposedly. Although nobody ever really confirmed it. 
and uh, obviously, but if one guy on the internet says it's going to happen, then it's going to happen. <laughs> then it's going to happen. Just today, a website posted some fake 4K covers of Nightmare on Elm Street and said Scream Factory is putting these out. And Scream Factory had to tweet out, like, no, we're not. So you can't believe everything uh, you see on the internet, kids. I'm shocked. I'm just shocked. I know we all want them to because they've done Halloween and Friday the 13th, but that doesn't mean that they are. Mm. I mean, they should. I but, agree you know. completely, but that doesn't mean that they will. Yeah, um, I just can't imagine. Yeah, Warner Brothers giving up that property so easily because that's like that's money, right? And but it is weird how their that. release is just like they put no attention into it. It's just like, yeah, here you go, here's the movies. Because for forty bucks, they know everyone's still going to buy it anyway. I guess. And we did, didn't we? I need the Dream Child in HD. Don't we all? You know, it's funny um, because like the original how. Uh, Halloween original Nightmare on Elm Street box set DVD set that came out like yeah. 99 I want to yeah. say because I remember that was a big deal I got it for Christmas um and I always for some reason ever like in that box set I had a problem with the Dream Master disc it had some sort of weird glitch in it could never get it to play right so then I had I bought rebought disc uh, disc master Dream Master again <laughs> still had problems with that one and that was like in a four pack and then I bought like a solitary uh, disc of it on DVD, like a few years after that, and still had problems with it. I was cursed when it came to Dream Master on DVD, so at least I'm happy with the Blu-ray. I've never had a problem. Somebody doesn't want you to hear Dramarama. Uh, it's it's awful. I don't know who cursed me that way, but it's it's not cool. Would you give anything anything for a Dream Master that works? I would, and I did because I have the Blu-ray. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> So, yeah, I would love to see, you know, obviously Nightmare on Elm Street is a, is a Blu-ray set, but I also want to make sure that when it's done, it's given the attention it deserves. Yeah. You know, treat it with, with kit gloves and give it all the love. Um, but it's funny because, like, basically, what do you do? Put put the uh, Never Sleep Again doc on every single one of the discs? Because, like, what else is there to say? Right. Well, that's true. It's like the ultimate special feature. It is. It really is. Yeah. That's to the credit of the people involved with it, including those of us who transcribed interviews. Ah. Ah. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, what else is there to do with it? Right. Other than like, here's Never Sleep Again. Yeah, maybe deleted scenes or something, you know, um, some of which I know are shown in the... I'm thinking again of the Dream Child. They show some of that uncut footage... Um, of what's his name on the bike. Do you know what I'm talking about? When he turns into like weird cyberpunk monster on the motorcycle. Oh, yeah. Danny. Uh, yeah. Danny uh, Hassel. Hassel. Thank you. Uh, you know, that got edited. And so some of that uncut footage is incorporated into never sleep again. So deleted scenes like that, or, you know, the original uncut, Dream Child, which was available on VHS for some reason, but never on DVD or Blu-ray. Uh, that would be cool. Yeah, I would love to see that because I know um, speaking with, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm flaking on who did the Danny Haskell makeup. Um, for that, 
I can't believe I'm totally blanking. It's on okay. That. It's somebody, somebody I interviewed, but they said that there was just so much cool stuff that never made it. And, yeah. and there's even stuff that they, they were doing like as they were manipulating it, um, where they weren't even rolling cameras. So there's even stuff that nobody's ever seen. Right. And that it doesn't exist on film. Right. But like, right. Right. Man. Yeah. That's like one of my favorites. I think sequences from all the movies. It's disturbing. It's so awesome though. Yeah. Yeah, justice for part five. That's all I'm saying. Yep, I it's grown on me a lot as I've become an adult. It's I love to hear it. It's it, it, it took it took a while, so it's the one part five that I'm getting more and more warm up. <laughs> if you will. I see what Speaking you did of, there. Should we should we mention what you have coming up this weekend? Not really. No. Oh come on now. <laughs> So this year, nobody nobody at Flashback Weekend has to deal with me this year, as I will be sulking over here on the West Coast. Partying but, at a music festival. Well, yeah, drinking my, my cares away because I'm sad that I'm not in Chicago. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. I'm going to be self-medicating all weekend. <laughs> but you will be hosting probably one of your dream panels, I would imagine. It has to be, right? I mean, I mean right? I don't know what Halloween four maybe would be one also other than finding a way to resurrect Toby. Right. (laughs) I'd be too nervous to do anyway. So, yeah. So this is, I think this is like perfect because you're going to be hosting a panel for Friday five. I am. There is a Friday the 13th part five, a new beginning reunion panel at this year's flashback. And, uh, Heather was nice enough to recommend me for the gig. And so I will be moderating that panel and asking about uh, what it was like to work with lunatic Danny Steinman and leaving out all questions about the guy that played Joey. Yep. Definitely not going to talk about that guy. Nope. Not going to touch it. Nope. Nope. Probably bad choice of words there. Oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there, sir. <laughs> I didn't do anything. <sighs> anyway, yeah, that's on uh, that's on Friday if you're listening to this the week it comes out. And you live yes. in Chicago. And you're yes. going to Flashback. <laughs> it's yes. a lot go of caveats. Yes. But go see Patrick at Flashback if you're in the Midwest and you're going to want to go to a horror convention. Yes. Absolutely. And you want to see Friday the 13th 5 because then they're screening the movie right after the panel. That's that is something. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm excited. Oh, I'm glad. I'm so glad for you. I love that. Because let's be really honest. If I was if I was going to Chicago this year and I was doing that panel, yeah. how pissed would you be? <laughs> I wouldn't be pissed because if I couldn't do it, at least you're doing it. You know. <laughs> right. No, for real. I would know. I I would be sitting in the audience, like, knowing, like, Heather secretly hates this movie, but she's not letting on. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hate it. It's just definitely not one of my favorites. It's definitely better than Jason Takes Manhattan. I'll give it that. Yes. That's a a pretty low bar. Um, But, yeah, no, it's it's funny because I was, like, thinking to myself, I'm like, God, if I was going to Chicago, I'm like, I would... I would have no choice but to have to bring you up during this panel because, like, <laughs> in good conscience, I could not sit there and do a Friday Five panel with you in the crowd and me trying to be up there doing it. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So this is this is this is what you were meant to, to meant to do. <laughs> it's what you I was put born, on earth for. Yes, you were born to do this panel. Pattern. Yeah. This and is this is weird. I'm going to self actualize. Yeah. 
And you know what? You're going to do great. And somebody better take some videos so I can see. Oh, uh, we'll see about that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's Erica's going. Um, I don't know if she can go on Friday. She's coming on Saturday, but I don't know if she can go on Friday. And uh, I don't know. I told her, like, maybe she shouldn't because I'm so nervous. Oh, but it's better if she's there. I don't know. Maybe it's better if there's no one I know in the audience. So is Risky and JB not going to flashback then? I don't know if they're going on Friday. Okay. Risky's not, I know. He can't go. Okay. Well, see, now I'm glad I'm not going because you all would have let me down on Friday. Yeah. Bunch of jerks. Yeah, well, I would have been there. Oh, well, there you go. Damn it. No Denny's for us this year. Damn it. I know. This is not good. But someday soon I'm you're going to be in Chicago, hopefully, and we will go to Denny's. Yeah, sorry I'm a broke-ass loser who can't make it out to Chicago. I apologize. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Oh, so we were talking yep. about Deadly Friend. Yes, and they got into like a million other things. Which is what everyone watch... tuned in for. Yes, but I couldn't let this, this opportunity to promote something that you're doing well, thank pass you. us by. Thank you. So, let's talk about my, my dumb stuff. So we have to well, because you have stuff. more stuff to promote. <laughs> I rarely have anything to promote. Whatever. So you're gonna be like that. You're gonna become the panel king now of Chicago. Uh, PK is what they're gonna call me. Yeah. Hey, there's PKPB. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> anyway, deadly friend. Fun. We were saying, Jinx. Yes. Um I want to point everyone in the direction of our, our mutual friend Joe Madry was kind enough to send me a piece that he wrote for Daily Dead back in 2015 called Deadly Friend in Autopsy. And you can read it at Daily Dead or you can read it on Joe's blog, which is madry.blogspot.com. Um, and you can just Google it to find it really quickly. Uh, it's an amazing piece that goes through sort of what happened with this movie um, the various drafts he talks about. Here's what happens in the novel because the novel is significantly different from the movie and even the script is different from the movie that eventually hit screens in 1986. So it talks about here's the novel, then here's Bruce Joel Rubin's screenplay that everybody kind of shot and then sort of like with The Fog with John Carpenter, they went and did reshoots after a test screening and made it way more of a horror movie. They cut a bunch of character stuff out, reshot all of the, like, goriest stuff, um, and made it much more of a movie that Wes Craven fans would be expecting because by now Nightmare on Elm Street had come out uh, and, you know, there was there were some associations with the name Wes Craven that people were expecting when they went into one of his movies. So they tried to turn it into a Wes Craven movie. Uh, they reshot that batshit terrible ending uh, at the insistence of a producer. Uh, anyway, this article goes through all of that and is is a really good sort of... I would say dissection, but he refers to it as an autopsy on sort of what went wrong with Deadly Friend. But let me ask you this before we get too deep into it. Do you like Deadly Friend? Like, what do you think of Deadly Friend? I mean, I would never call it top tier Craven content. Um, but, you know, revisiting it, like, because it's funny, I... 
part of me thought I'd never seen it. And then as I was rewatching, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, uh, beyond the basketball scene, which has become like the most infamous scene out of that movie. For sure. Um, there was parts of it that started clicking where I was like, oh, no, this I remember this. I remember this sequence. But I, I think it was just like one of these things like maybe watching it in passing. And I just it was before I was really connecting the dots as to like directors and their filmographies. OK. Um, because I totally remembered the sequence in the basement and I was like, cause I remember the, like the body was pretty mangled when it comes, like when he pulls it out of it, pulls her dad out of the furnace and stuff. And I was like, I totally remembered that. Um, so I, I actually think there's some pretty good stuff here. Um, stuff that does feel very craveny. Um, but I mean, I think knowing what the intention was behind it, what the original, story of it is like it's a little bit of a bummer that it didn't quite go as far as it could have right yeah it's i i still would say that i like it overall it's entertaining as sort of just a a slightly schlocky 80s horror movie yeah with its heart in the right place i think um I mean, the the horror sequences, the gore sequences work like gangbusters. They just are from a different movie. And I would say that's sort of the overall issue with the movie is that it's constantly... It's, it's so many different movies battling it out for supremacy. Um, and again, Joe Madry goes into this in his article, but it's it's a bit like its own main character in that, you know, <laughs> I don't think this comes through in the movie, but you can tell there are, there are moments where, you know, the, the resurrected Sam is like part Sam, part BB and sort of battling it out for who's going to win. And that really only, cause uh, she's mostly BB for the entire movie. And then at the end we get glimpses of, no, there's still some of Sam in there. Um, and that's the movie deadly friend. It's like, there's part of this movie that Bruce Joel Rubin and Wes Craven originally set out to make, which is sort of this teen love story tragedy. And then there's part of like this schlocky killer robot movie that the producers wanted from Wes Craven um, and they're sort of duking it out and neither movie totally works on its own. And so you get this weird hybrid that I think is interesting. Um, especially as, you know, kind of a, we're trying to be scholars of Wes Craven's filmography, um, as taken on its own, you know, in 1986 without looking at with in the larger context of Wes Craven's filmography, it's probably pretty forgettable, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting case study in like what he was trying to do, pushing himself in a new direction, um, taking his career in a different direction and then sort of being pulled back to, no, 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 you're known for this, do this. Um, and then just one movie later, he kind of does manage to break out and do something totally different with the serpent and the rainbow. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think what's interesting, too, is that, you know, you mentioned there's two movies and there's like the budding teen romance uh, sort of movie. And then there's like this weird, like super like 
I don't want to say stylist, but like sort of more fantastical, like horror type story. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, you know, from reading Joe's piece in the past, like I know that the main character was supposed to be more disturbing. Um, like the character of Paul, like he was supposed to be like, you know, kind of a freak himself and that he and Samantha kind of meet up because they're both sort of these like tortured souls. But in the movie, like Paul moves to town and immediately makes a friend and then immediately makes more friends. And then he's right. pretty much well accepted in his life. So he's a pretty well adjusted kid um, who just, you know, in this context, like kind of the thing that he creates gets away from him. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting because there is, there are a few different genres kind of battling it out here. Um, which I think is why it's kind of fascinating because I think, you know, ultimately for me, the stuff that I really glommed onto was this idea, you know, much like nightmare on Elm Street, um, much like he would kind of go on to do and scream. Um, the, the, you know, it is Wes once again, sort of exploring the horrors of being a kid in America, you know, in these respective time periods and especially in the eighties. Um, because, you know, you have two characters, you know, between Sam and Paul who, you know, Paul's living with a single mom. Sam is living with her abusive single father. Um, and while obviously Paul's home life is much, you know, much more loving and accepted and her, you know, he has a very active, uh, parental figure in his life. Like Samantha, like, you know, she lives in fear of her father and obviously her father has been abusing her. Um, and we even sort of get that disturbing nightmare sequence from her, uh, when he comes into her bedroom, Yeah, which is, is kind of harrowing. And I, and I think it's interesting to me, like looking at the movies and the way Craven would always sort of like, you know, kind of pull back the layers of adolescence and the different types of horror that kids were going through. Um, you know, to me, that's like, that's the good stuff of this. Yeah. Like that feels like, okay, this is Craven right here. Like the weird fantastical stuff, like the, the stinger at the end doesn't really feel it. it, First of all, it doesn't even make sense. It makes no Um, goddamn sense. I mean, yeah. Um, but it just doesn't feel like Wes Craven to me, but there's the heart of this movie. It feels like Craven because I think, there was a man out there who's genuinely concerned about what was happening to teenagers in America, mm-hmm. you know, and for this movie and Nightmare on Elm Street specifically, like during 80s America, you know, during this whole Reagan era of, you know, families era. first and things like that era, um, you know, and that's the stuff that I appreciated, you know, and it, you know, when you're looking at 1986, I mean, there's no way to like watch this movie and not immediately compare it to like short circuit. (laughs) Like you just can't, you just can't because they both came out the very same year, you know, and you have Johnny five and you have BB and they're both adorable little robots. Um, I don't know how we got so robot crazy. I almost wondered, do you think it was a response to Rocky four? I mean, what else could it be? Right. Rocky four gave us all robot fever. It did. We were, we, there was the only cure was more robots. (laughs) <laughs> bb is a is a total reaction to uh to rocky ford 
I think so. And I mean, obviously, also. And Burt Young's sex robot. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Um, but I, 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 you know, I would say like much like, you know, how, how Craven sort of, you know, Scream was sort of a reaction to, you know, the idea of communication um, and sort of how media has kind of played into things, which we'll get into when we get into Scream. You know, I do think that there is something to be. And shocker. Um, I do think that there is sort of a reaction to the fact that, you know, now we're in 86, pretty much every house in America had a VCR, you know, most, you know, a good portion of people were like having cable technology was taking over. People were starting to use portable phones more like our lives were starting to get more and more automated. And to me, BB, this thing that's supposed to be helpful and fun yet ends up becoming, you know, this destructive force. Right. To no fault of its own, really. It's all Ian Ramsey's fault, really, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, that article that I referenced points out that, like, the deadly friend incarnation of Sam first kills the dad, which is something that Sam would want to do, then kills Anne Ramsey, which is something that Bibi would want to do. So which one is behind the wheel, you know? And the movie never really answers that question and never really even raises that question until the end when we get that point of view shot of the the sort of switching back and forth where we get BB vision and then we get Sam vision and then BB vision and then Sam vision. Um, it's It's... It's a missed opportunity in so many ways because you touch on what's sort of interesting about the movie in terms of young people and their relationships and the the horror that Sam is facing at home sort of contrasting with the suburban domesticity, although it's it's broken domesticity because this is really the first time that we don't get the nuclear family sort of being deconstruction deconstructed or destroyed in a Wes Craven movie. It already has been, uh, you know, because, uh, Matthew, uh, shit, I'm going to labor, laborato. 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 Okay. Um, is a product of divorce. You know, his mom has recently split with his father. And so they have moved to a new, neighborhood a new house and um so the movie isn't really about that the way that so many of his past films have been but the book that they're adapting from <clears throat> these characters are 13 and 11 you know um paul which is his name in the film is a character named piggy <laughs> in the book uh and he is like uh, a heavyset, awkward kid who has no friends whatsoever. And when he befriends Sam, it's like, it's all he has in the world. And so it makes sense that he would try to resurrect her. You know, in the movie, it's like, like you said, he makes immediate friends with the kid, with uh, Tom, you know, uh, and then makes immediate friends with Sam. By the way, it's it's disturbing to me that Samantha Sam's last name is Pringle, 
because that is what my son uses uh, in place of the word penis. Oh. He refers to it as his Pringle. And so... Uh, First of all, I'm going to file this under things I probably did. <laughs> no, but cool. I mean, it makes sense because the first time Charlie ever came to the door, he was pantsless. So, you know. Was he really? He was, <laughs> he was like... like was like he was really really little yeah he would have been and i think he just came down from like a nap or something and ran to the door with no pants on and i just remember staring straight up and i was just like hi charlie <laughs> well he doesn't do that anymore so you'll be uh, delighted to know now that he's 12 he does put on pants before he goes oh, to the door that's good it's good you guys are raising him right now <laughs> i can't i can't i can't claim the same for those early years but you know, he's on track. <laughs> no no we really did not have it under control um but yeah by i I under i understand why they sort of age the characters up and why he wants to make this a movie about teenagers and the teenage experience it's certainly something that he had explored a few times you know most famously and probably successfully in a nightmare on elm street but i think back to like summer of fear and this is him going back to that sort of young adult well, because this feels like, you know, a YA horror movie the way that Summer of Fear did. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would totally agree with that. Um, and again, I think it's interesting, too, that um, nightmares sort of come into play in this because I, it, what's interesting I think to those me were we, I think those were reshoots. I think all of those were reshoots where again, yeah. it's like you're Wes Craven, you're the nightmare guy have a nightmare where, you know, a guy who's been badly burned comes back and scares one of your characters. You're like, I've never seen that before. Right. <laughs> who would, but, who would, but I think who also within thing? the con to the context of the story, it works because you have two teens that are sort of at different points are being tortured by certain circumstances, whether it's Samantha being tortured by the fact that her father's abusing her and she's, you know, terrified of him even being around him. And then eventually, you know, you have Paul who's, you know, being tortured by the fact that he just brought a dead girl back to life right. and implanted a robotic chip in her. And, oh, I don't know, if, you know, how this is actually really going to work out, because when we're kids, we think we have control. Um, and I think that's like a, a thing that like a lot of teens, like when we're young, we think we're untouchable. We think we have control. We think we we have the, the answers to certain circumstances. Um, and in Nightmare on Elm Street for the most part, Nancy does in this, Paul really doesn't. He just messes everything up worse and worse. Right. Um, you know, by thinking he's smart, you know, cause he's a smart kid, you know, he's already in foot, you know, I almost, I almost dropped an F bomb there. He's already in like university doing uh hell I'm British. He's already in university doing his <laughs> robotics, his studies, um, his studies, uh, with his crumpets. Um, but you know what I mean? Like he's like, it's a, a young teenage kid who's already in a, a high academic environment, right? you know? So he's already being, uh, basically transformed into an adult at a very early age. So of course he's going to think that this is the right way to do it because he thinks he has control that he really doesn't have control when you're a teenager is an illusion, you know? We, we think we, we can handle things that ultimately when you go back and you look at it, you're like, oh, probably not so much. Um, and I think that's sort of a, fa a fascinating dynamic that, you know, in the case of Nightmare, Nancy really was the only person who had control over what was happening in that movie. And she was the one who could figure out how to deal with it. Whereas in this one, you know, the, 
those decisions that Paul makes with his, you know, with the maturity level that he has ends up just getting, you know, making things worse and worse. Right. Well, and it's no secret that this is as the book, as was the book, a riff on Frankenstein and sort of the Frankenstein archetype. And so this is once again, what happens when a character attempts to play God? And the answer is always nothing good. Yeah, nothing good ever comes from it. And you think also, too, like, it's like Reanimator was the year before. Right. So it's funny for as, as much as, like, you know, there are the, the Frankenstein riffs that are in this, uh, both in the book and in the movie, you know, part of me just, which, of course, Reanimator goes, is riffing on Frankenstein as well. But I think my brain really kind of went to Reanimator because you have sort of these people, you know, stuck in scientific study within the university feet you know and in, in, at the level of university studies and like and ultimately just everything they do they're like oh this is gonna fix it nope this is making it even worse right um so like for me this is like the the ya version of reanimator mm-hmm. you know or, <laughs> or the dark side of weird science yes um which is a movie i don't really love I no i'm it. with you i did not really grow up with weird science and every time i've seen it i've just kind of been like eh, not for me yeah, I just I'm I'm I don't really love the the premise. It's one of the the few John Hughes movies that I just am like, eh, I'm okay if I don't really watch that one. I'm yeah, fine. I'm with you. Um yeah, I'm good. See, this is why we're horror BFFs. That's right. Um and, and Craven Craven buddies. Yeah. We're, we're all sorts of friends. <laughs> um but yeah, I just it's 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 so interesting to me that like you have this director who like at this point in his you know, in his life, you know, he's what, in his 50s almost is he really already i mean because like he was born in like the late 30s i thought yeah so you have a director who's pretty advanced age you know he's not like a a 20 something guy working on teen stories um and i just think it's fascinating like is i wonder if it's part of it is like him trying to like sort of recapture his own frustrations as, as being a teenager like in the 50s and coming out of world war ii and things like that um, and sort of the horror of having to like live up, you know, kind of live past that and like the rebuilding of, you know, the world. And it's, it's just interesting to me. You don't often see a lot of directors at his age taking on teen stories the way that he does, but he does them all, you know, for better or for worse with a really interesting sense of uh, introspection to them. Yes, I would agree with that until we get to, I think, the one you haven't seen. <laughs> Oh, okay. So now I'm just talking out of my ass. Okay. No, not really. But when he does do <laughs> My Soul to Take, it's like, it, it's like, it's, it, and I need to revisit it. So maybe I'm talking out of my ass here. But then at that point, he's like a 70-year-old doing Well, that's the movie. thing. It's like, it's like an alien who read a book about teenagers and tried to reproduce what he had read. And, and what it, what comes out is My Soul to Take. It's It's a crazy, fascinating movie that I'm excited to talk about. It's a while before we get there. It is a while. A it is while. a while. It's a while. Yes. Before we um, get there. Can we talk about the fact that I didn't even realize either that Charles Fleischer does the BB voice. Speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street connections. Well, listen, you need to get a big name to do BB. You know, look, all I'm saying is when I talked to, when I talked to Charles on the phone he answered the phone with his Roger Rabbit voice, and I was like, I was suddenly like a kid again. <laughs> so have him do all the wacky voices he wants. He's a he's an interesting guy. 
Yes. And also, I mean, it gives us a really fun song at the end of the movie, too. The BB, like, rock like BB, song? BB. Yeah. 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 Yeah, this is a weird movie uh, <laughs> that I think, I can't believe hasn't already gotten the uh, Scream Factory treatment. And I hope does, you know, at some point. Um because now they're working with Warner Brothers licensing and they've done so many Wes Craven movies already that it only makes sense for them to do this movie. Um, yeah. I'm sure Christy Swanson would sit down for an interview. I hope that they would get like Joe Madry to do a commentary for it. Cause I think that would be great. Um, let's talk about uh, Christy Swanson's performance because I got to tell you at the time this movie came out, through most of the nineties, I had a major crush on Christy Swanson. Um, Not so much now these days though. Huh? No, you know what? Weirdly I've gotten over it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's amazing how that's happened in the last couple of years. It's almost as though I received new information that cured me of my crush. Yes. I mean, Christy Swanson, I, I'm with you. Like I, I always, I, I, I've always adored Christy Swanson because I remember her uh, from her little bit part in pretty pink um, I absolutely adore uh, the chase and dude, where's my car? I um, do too. Of, I'm with you of there. Of course, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, um, and also for some reason, I remember going to see uh, or watching Flowers in the Attic with my mom. I've still which, never seen Flowers in the Attic. It's a it's not a really great ap- adaptation of the book. The book is way more disturbing. Okay, um, same with Deadly you, Friend. It sounds like. <laughs> Yeah, um, so it's interesting that, like, two pretty controversial stories for yeah. that time, and she's in both adaptations, right. and they don't quite push it the way they should. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I uh, I was always a big Christy Swanson fan. I It's funny, like, I actually kind of like her performance in this. Um, I don't mind the weirdness once she's sort of BB-fied. Like, where her hands are kind of acting like little, like, clampy things that, like, a robot would have. Well, um, it's very inconsistent because oh, it is. sometimes she does it and then sometimes... the makeup around her eyes, too. Right. Sometimes she does it and sometimes she's just a normal teenager, like, running away from the police. Or she's, like, super superhuman robot Terminator girl who, like, jumps over things, like, right. ridiculously. Yes. Uh, which is nothing BB could have ever done because he was, like, a rolling robot. So I'm not quite sure where the leaping abilities came from. But it looks cool. It looks really cool. Sometimes when she um, is, like, strangling somebody, I think it's maybe when she's strangling her dad and we get these close-ups of her face and she's doing mad face, I cannot help but think of Miko Hughes in Pet Cemetery. <laughs> Well, he set the bar. Doing Mad Face. <laughs> uh, you know, that movie came after this, but it's the same kind of thing. Um, and there, there are there are echoes of that movie in this movie in terms of, like, bringing somebody back from the dead and, again, playing yeah. God and grief and the inability to process your own grief so you do something you shouldn't do. Again, Reanimator touches on all that same stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like her in the part, uh because I think you need somebody, and again, we're talking about 1986 Christy Swanson, not 2021 Christy Swanson. You need somebody who I think automatically engenders our goodwill. 
Yeah. Because and we she's lose. she's really a sweet girl. She is. And we lose Sam so early in the story and we have to understand why Paul does what he does. And again, I think the original screenplay and the original cut of the film both spent more time on the love story. Both spent more time with these two, you know, quote unquote kids getting to know one another, getting to care about one another, um, finding sort of kindred spirits in one another and all that got hacked out. And so what's left is the, the quickest shorthand version of that. And I think Christy Swanson's casting goes a long way towards understanding Paul feeling like he can't live without her. Um, and he has to bring her back because she was taken so, so unfairly. Yeah. And, uh, and she is great. You know, I recently rewatched for a different podcast, Mannequin 2 on the Move. And that is a movie oh, that boy. does not work at all, save for the casting of Christy Swanson and William Ragsdale, two people I want to watch in a romantic comedy that isn't Mannequin 2 on the Move. <laughs> if only we had a time machine to go back. <laughs> But they're great in it, you know, and you watch and you're like, oh, my gosh, you're so charming and you're so likable. Why are you trapped in this movie? Um, And I don't feel that in in Deadly Friend because I don't feel like they're trapped in a movie that isn't working. They're 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 stuck in a movie that isn't sure what it wants to be. But again, that's something that happened almost after the fact, you know, because of reshoots and producers meddling and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I I think for me, just because she's just, there's a warmth to the performance early on. Yes. That I, I buy in immediately. As um, do and I. She bring, and she brings in little treats, which is just a nice thing for anybody to do. Um, I couldn't see what kind of treats they were. I was trying, I, I paused it to try to get an eye, get an eyeful of what that was, but I couldn't make out what the, the treats were. Um, but like, there's just something really inherently sweet about her that you want to protect her, especially because her dad is just so terrifying. Yeah, he's a monster. Um, yeah, he is. Um, that his name, of course, Harry Pringle. Hmm. <laughs> See, you can't say like that to things like that now because that's like... his name. <laughs> I can't make that up. Oh, you didn't. You didn't even have to. <laughs> nope. Um, yeah, Harry Pringle, if you will. Okay. Well, great. Now that's going to be stuck in my head all night. That's fantastic. If I have to live with it, so do you. Oh, boy. I don't have to live with the Harry Pringle, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, that's going to go down a weird road. I'm just going to do a U-turn here. Uh, but anyway, back to this. I think, you know, I think that there's like sort of that, you know, that, oh, we see the scenes early on when they're like, you know, Paul and Sam and Tom are hanging out and they're playing basketball and then there's, they're, they're trick or treating. So Tom, or they're doing little Halloween pranks, which like, all right, you're, you, you say part of your movie during Halloween and Thanksgiving. Like I'm in. Gotta love it. Like, I mean, honestly, this would have been an immediate four star if we would have made it to Christmas. <laughs> if we could have run the whole gamut of Halloween to Christmas, four yeah. stars. That's all I need. That's it, it is really all I need. Um, so like I, I like what we get of them, and I and I think it does a decent amount of a decent uh, job enough of making the dynamic between these three people work. I actually think Tom is sort of a, a sort of a stealth MVP of the movie. Interesting, because 
Well, because it's funny because like, so, you know, first of all, he's the guy who's like, no, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing this. Like he gets it. Paul's good at this kind of stuff and he finds it fascinating. But when he realizes like just how far he's willing to push it, he's the guy who's trying to get Paul to be like, I don't think we should be doing this. Right. Like, you know, maybe we, you know, maybe we just go back now or whatever. And then I still, I think my favorite moment is like in the movie when, um, after Anne Ramsey's character gets her head obliterated by a basketball, which is our, you know, I mean, I don't even think it's arguably, it is the, the movie's best scene. Um, that like, you know, the whole, like everybody in the, and the, on the block is like coming out to see what the, the ambulances are there for and the police cars and like Tom comes riding up on his bike and immediately as soon as he figures out what's going on, he just falls over <laughs> out of shock and like, oh my God. And basically just looks at Paul and just like rides off. He's like, uh-uh, I know, I'm out. Yeah. And that's like, to me, that was like such a like, that probably would have been like my reaction. Like, oh my God, what have we done? And I'm out of here. You are on your own. On your own. So I just, I, I really like uh, Michael Sherrod's performance in the movie. Yeah, I think everybody in the movie is pretty likable, um, with the exception of Harry Pringle, who is, uh, <laughs> you know, a monster and played accordingly by Richard Marcus. The only performance that maybe doesn't totally click for me is the biker guy, just because I think he goes... A little too far. A little too, too much. Over the top. And, I mean, Anne Ramsey is such shorthand casting, like... Can you imagine her playing a normal person? No, she doesn't need to. She was, you know, she's Anne Ramsey. She's Anne Ramsey. Like, who is she besides Mama Fratelli and Throw Mama from the Train? Like, those two performances are so sort of iconic. Um, I don't remember her from many other movies, but it does appear that she had a long and extensive resume, a lot of TV. I saw her, I'm trying to remember what the movie was. I saw her in something that we watched in our film class in high school. And I couldn't believe it was her. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at her IMDb now because I was like, what was that movie? Hmm. Um, was it Dr. Hackenstein? No, it wasn't Dr. Because apparently she's in a movie called Dr. Hackenstein. Good for her. Yeah. Oh, With a name like Hackenstein, you really have to be a doctor. Because you couldn't just be Mr. Hackenstein. No, no, no. There has to be a Mrs. Professor God, Hackenstein. What was, it, what was it that we watched? Rabbi Hackenstein. Jeez Louise. Was it a TV? I'm trying to remember. I just remember seeing her in something and I was like, whoa. Like, this is the same person? Yeah. Um, Like, she, there was, like, subtlety. Which, I mean, arguably, there wasn't a lot of subtlety in sort of a lot of the movies and, you know, roles that she took on later in her career. Not that that's anything wrong with it, but you know what I mean? Like, it was, there was, there was a purpose to, to why she was cast in certain roles. Right. God, that's going to bug me now, but we could sit here for 20 minutes while I try to get my head out of my Mm. butt, but we could just move on. Um, But yeah, like, I, 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 you know, I think she's, you know. For what that character needed to be and her purpose, like, I, I don't know that I would put anybody but Anne Ramsey in that role. Sure. At the time. Sure. It makes me wonder who I would cast now, though. Hmm. I don't know who could, I don't know who's that Yeah, who is the modern equivalent of Anne Ramsey? I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever see another Anne Ramsey. 
Somebody's got it out there. Got to be it. Yeah. Who is that? I don't know. Let us know. I mean, is it like Kathy Bates? I mean, she's too big. Um, you know, she's too, she's too big a name. Um, but I mean, I look at like the things that she, the things that she takes on, and like in terms of like doing something like Waterboy, for example. Like after being nominated for an Oscar, for <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and being in like right. Like, well, uh, and she did all those American Horror Stories, so she certainly yeah, is gonna... in with the genre. Yeah, I'm gonna go Kathy Bates. Why not? Sure. Uh... I would watch that movie. Yeah, I feel like, you know, producers would cast some kind of, like, horror icon or something. Like, I, I don't know who. Uh, Are you saying Kathy Bates isn't a horror icon? She's certainly enough of one. I was thinking more somebody like a... I don't know who. I, I don't know who. Yeah. So, somebody See, who, somebody who does conventions. Uh, <laughs> somebody who does conventions. <laughs> Okay. Wow, you know. make it sound like that. Yeah. Whatever. All right. I don't know. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll move on from there. Sure. Um, but yeah, I I you know, it's again, it's one of those movies. This is one of those things where like there's there's definitely moments where I'm watching this I'm like, "Yes, this is absolutely 100% unfiltered Craven." And then there's other parts where I'm like, "Ah, yes, this is a studio or somebody who just has an interpretation of what they would want him to do. And you mentioned, of course, the reshoots with the nightmares. Um, and we briefly talked about that stinger. Do you, like, I remember kind of being like, eh, about it. Like now I'm, I'm actually offended by it. Oh yeah, for sure. I am too. It's kind of a bummer for me because yeah. like pretty much like everything else. I'm like, okay, yeah. All right, cool. 1986 horror. Yeah, I'm on board. Um, this kind of made me a little bit angry because it was just, it didn't, it didn't like not even within like a quote unquote nightmarish kind of concept. Like it just doesn't work. No, not at all. Like whatsoever. And again, Wes Craven has been the victim of that, you know, in the past, even a nightmare on Elm street, which I would still maintain is his best movie is the victim of, uh, this ridiculous coda that's made at, you know, a producer's insistence. Um, and the same thing happens with Deadly Friend, but in Nightmare on Elm Street, I think it works because of the rules that that movie establishes. Uh, the effect itself is a little wonky, but whatever. I still maintain that the ending is okay within the universe of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Within the universe of Deadly Friend, without making it like a fourth, I think there's three nightmare sequences, without making it a fourth nightmare sequence. Yeah which the movie does not do. It cuts to black and credits and argues that yep. like, no, no, this is happening within the reality of the film um, is total horseshit. It is. Um, and it's interesting to me also too, that like, um, you know, cause we talked about the fact that this is, has those like sort of like, yeah, like YA, like family friendly type of connotations. And, you know, there's two different movies sort of struggling to happen here. Um, part of me wishes, you know, because, you know, there's the argument to be made that this is sort of like Wes Craven trying to make his star man. Um, that right. I kind of wish almost we would have had zero blood and guts. Yes. And all that. And just, we got like that sort of pure 
you know, Wes Craven making a happy movie about teens and a robot and everything's good. And uh oh, things are kind of bad, but we're going to work it out. Um, and certainly nobody's head's going to explode from getting a basketball <laughs> thrown at it. Um, but at the same time, there's some really good effects in this movie, <laughs> you know? So I'm kind of like of two minds where I'm just like, you know, it's kind of some cool stuff. Like I love the, you know, the robot stuff was done by a different team. Uh, then Lance Anderson, who handled all the uh, the gore and special makeup effects and things like that. Um, I will say, though, that the inconsistency of the coloring around uh, Christy Swanson's eyes in the movies was very distracting. Inexcusable. Me. I just, you know, that kind of stuff bugs me a little bit. <laughs> well, you're probably a lot more attuned to it than a lot of us. Oh, no, I'm just nitpicky about that kind of stuff. <laughs> Um, you know, the Starman movie that you're talking about, I think that was the movie that Wes Craven made before they came in and reshot and added all the blood and guts and stuff like that. Because it was this movie that was a much more kind of thoughtful, sensitive movie about the teenage experience. And then some producer said, no, 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 you're the you're the horror guy. Make it a horror movie. Um, and this isn't the last time that Wes Craven will have to deal with producers who are too hands on. Uh, because he's dealing with like that, that a lot in his career, but it's the last time that I think his movie gets really compromised by it. Yeah, I feel like how many horror directors in their careers have literally had that experience? Like, all of them. Yes. Like, when you talk about all the masters of horror that were, you know, came up through that, that era. Era. I think literally every single one of them had to deal with studio interference. Yes. And at least at least once, if not multiple times. And what does that say about how the industry didn't had such a lack of faith in genre storytellers back then? Yeah, yeah. You know, because I don't really hear about these stories like on comedies and stuff. I mean, I'm sure it happened, but like it, maybe it's just that the horror the the ones from the horror directors are a little more publicized because that's the stuff that we read about. And, right, you know? but right, I'm just right. like. You know, I, I don't really hear about major studio interference on Breakfast Club. Right. You know? And things like that. So, yeah, I, it's, uh, you know, what the hell? Toby Hooper uh, was dealing with it on his last movie. Like, he never <laughs> didn't deal with that shit. I think, I think Wes had to deal with it on Scream 4, too. I know he dealt with it on Scream 3, which is how, you know, Jay and Silent Bob end up in the movie. Um, that doesn't Scre bother me, though. Oh, boy. Uh, and Scream 4 was, yeah, there, because there's all that screenwriter drama, too, right? That Yeah, and then they kind ended, of pitched they ended that Williams's, scene at the end. Which scene? The hospital stuff. That wasn't the original ending of the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, he was working with the wine scenes, and they were very uh, hands-on and, and, and terrible for other reasons, but uh, hard to work also with in a lot of ways. Also Yes, right. Uh, terrible in a lot of ways beyond their approach to filmmaking. Yeah, I think even, um, I, I want to even say, like, when Carpenter was doing The Ward which was an independent studio. But I think he had to, I think there were some concessions made for how that movie ended too. Yeah. Like 
All right, can we just let people go make their movies now? Universal didn't want uh, George Romero to cast a black actor to play the lead in Land of the Dead. Yeah, I remember that too. Which is how and we that's got like Simon in the West. fucking 2000s, Simon Baker? Baker Simon West Baker. is the director, Simon Baker. Oh, yes, sorry, Simon Baker. Simon... Well, I don't even mind. He's uh, the mentalist, isn't he? He is the mentalist, yes. <laughs> My favorite running joke on uh, Psych is how much fun they make of the mentalist. Now I want to watch Psych, because I used to make fun of the Oh my god, Psych is so good. <laughs> oh my real. god psych is so good i love psych um, i used to like goof on psych because i was like who watches psych and then i started watching psych and now i love psych see we always joke on the we always make jokes about this the show suits because i was like who actually watched that show? yeah i don't know a single person who ever watched suits somebody after this air, episode airs is gonna come onto my twitter feed and be like i used to watch suits. for sure and because it ran awesome. for like a long time it was like eight seasons at yeah, least, I think. Right, right. And I'd be like, who's watching this? Like, NCIS, I get, because, like, Mark Harmon's on it. But, like, who's watching Suits? Yeah. So There was a whole sketch I, on Saturday Night Live uh, called What is Burn Notice? <laughs> I kind of remember that. It was a game show, and nobody could figure out what Burn Notice was. And <laughs> the joke was, you know, it's this hugely popular thing, and nobody knows what it is. I watched... All of Burn Notice, for the record. Oh, okay. Was it the Bruce Campbell effect, though? I think so, but I just liked it. I remember we used to see trailers for it all the time before Monday Night Raw. Okay. So, no, yeah, that's about show. as familiar as I got. Yeah, it seemed like it. And the guys who do Psych seem fun, because I did a Q&A with the, one of the guys, because he did that movie Gravy that yes. Screen Factory put out a few years ago. Which and that I was like. pretty fun. I like that movie. I like Gravy. Yeah. I do too. Um, I actually liked it more the second time. I think it's one that people are going to, in about five years, they're going to be like, hey, how come nobody told me about Gravy? And then I'm going to get mad because I know nobody reads anything that I write. The so, title's kind of bad. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but, but everybody's got but, that sort of single single word titles are, right. all of, are on vogue these days. Um, but there's lots of... Uh, I, I, we've turned this into Psychcast, but... Uh, yes. There's like an episode that's all Friday the 13th. There's an episode that's all. Yeah, twin... they did quite a few like it... horror themed episodes. There's one that's all Twin Peaks. There's one that's all Clue. How did I not know about a Clue episode? It's got. Are you going to turn Psych into like my new favorite TV it's show? It's got that I Christopher never Lloyd. It's got Martin Mull. It's got Leslie Ann Warren. Oh my God. Yeah. Until I tell Brian, he's going to freak out. Yeah. Oh boy! Now we're gonna go watch Psych tonight. It's be your uh, I want to say it's all on Amazon Prime. Okay. Yes. Well, here we go. So I encourage um, you the... to watch Psych. Can I? Can I just mention this really quick? I just yeah. realized because I had the Wes Craven Wikipedia page open. Yeah. Um, did you know that one of his nicknames, if you will, was the Sultan of Shock? Because I have never. Uh, no one's ever I've actually said that. Never right. I've never. And the guru <laughs> of nice, gore. Oh, nice try, Wikipedia. But again, yeah. no one has said that. Nobody's ever called him the, gul- the 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 guru of gore. He's not even known for gore. No. <laughs> he's, he's not. Like, uh, he's not Fulci. He, or even Romero. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like no. those are made up. Right. Those are made up Wikipedia. But nice try. I feel like I need to edit Wikipedia now. Please do. Let's shut it down. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta start 
retconning <laughs> Wikipedia. Um, but I think this all comes from us talking about, you know, studio interference and things like that. And I just can't imagine, like, you know, you're a director, you're finally like, all right, we're going to work with a big studio. And then it's just dealing with all this kind of interference. And, you know, for me, I think it's interesting that, like, after this, you know, I mean, he goes on to do, you know, Serpent and the Rainbow and Shocker and People Under the Stairs with Universal. But none of those really feel truly like studio pictures. But when I watch Deadly Friend, there's parts of it where it feels very studio, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Um, of those three, I mean, I think Shocker probably feels the most studio. Yeah, because I feel like that's like sort of a formula at that point. That, right. that, it's you know, the that formula be... that he kind of created. Exactly. But, it, or, but a formula you know, there's nonetheless. There's nothing about People Under the Stairs that feels like a studio movie No. Whatsoever. Gosh, that movie's no. great. That's like the best anti-studio studio movie <laughs> right? of, you know, of that of the nineties, I would say it's uh it's one of my favorite kinds of horror movies, which is especially within the studio system where it's like, and obviously we'll get to this in a couple shows, but like where it feels like someone's really getting away with something. Yeah. Yeah. There's part of me that like the horror fan wishes, cause I, I know like when they, when they did the reshoots for this um, and they kind of went harder for the R um, that basically they ended up with an X rating at first, which I'm just like, Jesus, how, how did this movie have an X rating? Yeah. I don't know if that's on the, the MPAA or if that's, you know, if there's some really cool stuff out there that we've, that's never been dug up from this movie, you know, cause it feels very R it doesn't feel X. So I'm just like, what, what the hell else is out there? Um, but it's like, to me, like this movie is like, you cut this movie one way, it's PG. You cut this movie another way, it's R. Nothing about this movie. I'm like thinking like, yeah, I can see where it got an X rating. And I almost feel like that's the story with every horror movie in the eighties. It's just like, you know, originally this had an X like, yeah, well they all did. Yeah. I mean like in something like Friday, the th- like your favorite Friday five, I get that because you know, the, the setups that they're doing there are pretty nasty. Yeah. And there's a lot of boobies and you know how they're <laughs> talking about boobies in the eighties. Right. Um, we don't even get boobies in movies anymore now. Um, so like I, I would get it in like those instances, right? But like this movie, I'm just like I'm struggling to 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 put like I'm thinking of the visuals, and I'm thinking of like the extreme versions of these visuals, and I'm still not connecting it. Like Reanimator getting an X, yeah, get that, get that completely. This movie, I'm still kind of like really, yeah. Like maybe that's just them, you know, every ex, you know, every horror movie that came through for whatever reason just immediately got an X and then they just had to work backward regardless. I mean, kind of, right? Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it, I'm I'm just kind of like what's what is the X-rated version of this movie look like? <laughs> I don't know. Uh BB goes full frontal. I was going to say is there like weird robot slash human hybrid sex with Paul. Like, I don't, you know, <laughs> that's in know. Rocky four. Ah, yes. I'm well, still I mean, convinced Paul, that Burt Young built that robot whoa, just to fuck it. Paul in his robot. Yeah. From deadly friend. Yeah. And then Paulie. Yeah. And his robot in yeah. Rocky four. Yeah. Whoa. 
Yeah. Which apparently Stallone's getting rid of, which is like, you don't ever lose your robot. You just never lose your robot. And I'll tell you, this is how I know America was robot crazy. Because I watch a lot of um, old game shows on Buzzer. And several of the prizes on different shows have been your own home robot. <laughs> Boy, we were uh, robot crazy, huh? We were. It was we, uh, Everybody dreamed of having a robot. They did. I, I saw it on Sale of the Century and Press Your Luck. Wow. Two, two of my favorites. Wow. I love, I love the whammies, so what can I say? I did as a child. Oh, you should go back and watch. You know, you know who created the whammies? Uh, I knew it at one point. Savage Steve Holland. That's right. That's what yes. I. That's what I knew. Yeah. Yep. They were my favorite when I was little. One crazy summer, getting a Blu-ray release. Oh wow! Look at that. Yeah. Are they gonna put some whammies on it? They should. Uh, perhaps there's just gonna be a an all whammy commentary. Oh, I would love that. I used to. I I'm, I just I used to love the whammies. I want. I want. I keep choking with Brian. I want him to create a t-shirt that has all the different little whammy versions on there. Because there's like boy whammies, girl whammies, right. the Michael Jackson whammy, there's uh, boy George whammy, there's the four tops whammy, you know, there's Santa whammy, there's, yeah. there's, there's so many. Bring it on. Bring on all the whammies. Yes. But anyway, apparently we just thought robots were the future. And now they can jump and two-step and do dance routines, and that's not ter- terrifying at all. <laughs> um, I'm very familiar with this movie's, I guess, VHS cover art, because it's, it's the raccoon-eyed Christy Swanson. She's got her hands out in sort of yes. that walk that she does and the one is kind of peeling away to reveal a robot underneath which again (laughs) isn't the movie until you get to that terrible last scene um but as i'm looking at the imdb page the original actual one sheet for this movie Mm -hmm. with her standing at a window with the curtains kind of billowing in um is really kind of great is it the one where it's a distance yes. her in the window or the one that's close up? Uh, distance. Okay. Yeah, I actually think that one's pretty cool. Yeah. You don't have that one sheet, do you? I know you have a lot of Wes Craven posters. I don't. I, I'm, I'm still trying to catch up. I mean, I don't have, like, his old ones, like uh, Last House or Hills Have Eyes, because, you know, I'm not a millionaire. Right. Um, I've never seen a Deadly Blessing one sheet. Um, I have Nightmare on Elm Street posters. I don't have a one, Nightmare one sheet, unfortunately. Yeah, again, um, not a millionaire. But yeah, mine, uh, mine, mine sort of pick up at Serpent and the Rainbow. Okay, so one yes. year later. Yes. So I have. I'm trying to remember. I know I have Serpent and the Rainbow. I don't know if I have Shocker. I think I have People Under the Stairs. I know I have New Nightmare. I, I know I have Scream. Scream 2 and Scream 4. I still have to get Scream 3. Okay. Um, I don't remember. I don't think I have Vampire in Brooklyn. I definitely don't have Music of the Heart. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> I know. i got to be the completest. Yes, well, eventually one day I'll have my own office that I can turn into my West Craven office. Yeah. So. Do you have the uh, the DVD of Deadly Friend? 
No, no, I actually had to rent this. Okay. Well, because yeah, it just has had... ridiculous cover art that like has a woman's face that is clearly not Christy Swanson and some weird blue oh. nail nail polish. It's part of Warner oh. Brothers' Twisted Terror collection, which also that included Doctor Giggles that's on Amazon. Okay. Oh, neat, neat. Yeah, I just I don't know what the fuck this this artwork is, but. Yeah, it's kind of like with the the sort of bait and switch of the, like the Sleepaway Camp sequels, right? When they're like, "Well, we can't put Pamela Springsteen on the art," and I'm just like, "Why? Why not?" <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess. Right. The blue the blue nail polish really really sells it though. Well, and that's the thing. Uh, I wasn't going to see this movie, but then I thought, "What's the story with that blue nail polish?" And uh, yep. bought the DVD. That's why I paint my nails blue. Nice. As an homage to the DVD cover of uh, Deadly Friend. That's what I'm telling people. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta go obscure with your references. That's why I have House 2 on my business card. Nice. You know, nice. I, gotta, I gotta keep people on their toes. <laughs> uh, is there anything else about Deadly Friend that you want to talk about? I'm trying to think about it. Um, no, I mean, I like the the fact that as soon as I was like, as soon as you get into like the neighborhood, I was like, Oh, this is such the Warner back lot. Um, <laughs> so there's something really nice and comforting about that. Right. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think that's about it. Okay. Yeah. I, I do wonder if, you know, because it, you know, they obviously like, for example, like alien came out in 79 Originally, Spielberg was supposed to do his mean alien movie, but then ultimately decided to do a family-friendly alien movie. E.T. is sort of this response to Alien. Um, and I'm wondering if, like, all of these sort of robot-friendly movies were, like, a response to Terminator. Yeah, I don't know. Or if it's just, as you said, America's obsession with robots in the 80s. Yeah, because, I mean, I think, you know, because obviously, you know, the robots were terrifying in Terminator... Um, and yet there's something inherently human-esque about if you look at BB or if you look at Johnny Five specifically, or even, you know, the robot in Rocky Four, which I think was the same year. Was, was Rocky Four 84 or 85? 85. Okay. So that would have been a year after Terminator. Yeah. So all of a sudden now we're making our robots friendly. Right. To a degree. Right. Um, yeah, I just think that, I don't know. I, trends like that are always fascinating to me. It's probably me just spitballing and talking about, you know, shit I don't know anything about. Um, but I like that kind of stuff because I think there's like, there, I, I think this, you know, movies, there's always sort of a call and response. I think when you have a movie that comes out and sets a tone, then you, it's really interesting to watch over the next few years what the responses are. Um, so, you know, I just think it's, a, you know, beyond the fact that we were probably getting really into technology and realizing like what the future would be. I think honestly, probably in the eighties people thought we were going to have way more robots than we do. We are somewhat robot deficient. We are, you know, I mean the Jetsons promised me like a maid. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Named Rosie. And I have to, yeah. And I have, to I have a Rosie, house. not a maid. You do. Oh, well yeah. you're, you have to train her better. Yeah, I guess. You know, she's getting to that age. She can start, you know, reaching, to be able to like dust higher and stuff. She can do dishes, <laughs> do some laundry. Well, the, I mean, the first, not the first scene with BB, because that's obviously the weird, like scene from RoboCop two, uh, yeah. where he stops the, the criminal. But, uh, 
in the next scene with BB, Paul explains like, well, I built the program, but he makes his own decisions. And I was like, you just described the singularity uh, rather casually. Yeah. Like, that's not terrifying to you right. at all that your like, robot's thinking st- for himself? <laughs> we're starting from that place. Like, and, that's that's never a good place to be, because no. that's how we get ex machina. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? And then everybody's disco dancing. Right. Which so, wouldn't be you know, so bad. Yeah, that's fine. I'd, I'd be okay with it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so. that's going to that's gonna do it for Deadly Friend. We will be back next month with, uh, with uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which I'm very excited to dive into, because I haven't seen it for a really long time. Oh, God, I watch it all the time. I'm so excited. It terrifies me, like, so much. Nice. But we'll get into that. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, me too. Thank you guys very much for listening, and Heather, thanks for, for talking about this movie with me. Thanks for bearing with me and all my my robot shenanigans. (laughs) Anyway, see you guys next month. Thank you.